Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. On the last episode, of guilt. Who killed Jordan Vidori? Sitting there thinking, what the hell? Shall I go out there or what? So that's why I was in shock and sort of stayed up. And then I thought, shit. So I rang Dick. I thought I'd go out and do some washing. And then I, and then when I went out there, that's when I rang my ex-husband and said, oh, I was coming out to your place, but there's, there's, a, there's a body at the gate. And he said, what? And I said, well, there's a body at the gate. And I was just wanting to ask you a couple of questions about that morning, if it was okay. No, that's a long time ago. Yeah, so you, you don't... Yeah, how long ago that was? Are you, are you a detective or anything? Uh, I'm just uh, a journalist. No, fuck off. Straight up, stop me to fuck off. I'm going to call him back. Firstly, before we get into this episode, I'd like to ask you a favour. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you click follow. That's the plus symbol on Apple Podcasts. This will alert you as soon as a new episode is released and helps the podcast more than you'd think. Also, please take a moment to give it a five-star rating and review. Secondly, I'd like to give you the opportunity to partake in an upcoming Q&A episode. If you have questions you'd like to ask about the podcast, perhaps theories you might have, or things you might have asked someone that I didn't, you can do this by heading to our Facebook page, Brevity Studios New Zealand. Simply send a private voice message via the page, and I'll answer as many as I can. Don't be shy. I want your input. Fresh sets of eyes and ears might open potential new leads. Make sure to include your first name and where you're from in the world. You can also join the Facebook group to discuss the case. I hope you've all had a fantastic Christmas and New Year's. Whether you had the opportunity to get away somewhere special or just took the time to relax and refresh at home, I managed to get away to the beach and get a chance to enjoy a slice of our famous New Zealand summer. But if I'm being honest, every time I sat quietly for a moment, sipping a drink, 
or waiting for the next set of waves, my mind drifted back to this case in the direction of episode 4. The podcast is at a crossroads of sorts, with a few directions of inquiry. A word of warning. This episode, you're going to be hearing a lot from me. We have a lot of very important details and evidence to cover. This episode contains adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Let's get into it. Episode 3 answered some questions regarding Linda and Richard and any potential involvement they may have had. But Barry's surprise appearance in the picture and his response has raised some new ones. I tried calling Barry again, but he has since refused to pick up my calls. I've also tried via text and was met with an all-caps response that I should direct any questions to the police and to never attempt contact again. I'm still struggling to understand exactly why he'd be so defensive, but it doesn't automatically infer that he's guilty of anything other than being a shit friend. It's possible that he feels embarrassed by the way he acted that morning and doesn't want to revisit those events. Either way, I'm at a dead end on that front. For the moment. There are two other main lines of inquiry I need to pursue. Jordan's former employee, Gareth, who apparently disappeared immediately following Jordan's murder. And secondly, the armed robberies that took place on the very same morning in the nearby towns of Waihee and Katikati. As I've found in the investigation to date, these decisions are often made for you. My computer dinged. I'd received an email from a resident of Waihee whose daughter was assaulted during one of these armed robberies while working at the Waihee mobile station that morning. In his eyes, there were always just too many coincidences. Before I play my interview with him, let's recap the known events of these armed robberies. At 5.45am on June 18th, 2012, approximately four hours after Jordan was shot in Paidoa, three men wearing balaclavas committed an aggravated robbery on the mobile service station in the small town of Waihee, 15 minutes to the east of Paidoa. The men were reported to be armed with a gun and a hammer. They assaulted the attendant before leaving and then continued east, and 20 minutes later performed a second armed robbery at the Park Road convenience store in Caddy Caddy. Here, the owner managed to lock himself in a back room, so nothing was taken. Three men were eventually charged with these robberies, but at this stage in the podcast, I've decided not to name them. The information is public knowledge, but as a lot of what you will hear in this episode is speculation, I've decided not to include them. They've served their time for the crimes proven in court, and I believe they deserve the right to some anonymity at this stage. I will say that at least two of the men were related, and they were aged between 17 and 20, and were sentenced to six years, six years, and four years respectively, for the robberies and other offences. Only two of the men were present at the Caddy Caddy convenience store, and as such received a reduced sentence. For their own security, I won't be using the real names of the attendant or her father in this podcast. I'll refer to them as John and Sam. I asked John about the email he sent me and what he can remember about the incident. Well, nothing much at all. Um, and the reason being is that I was supporting my daughter because uh, that was quite a traumatic time for her. Yeah, of course. Although she put on a very brave face, she went back to work the next day against all um, recommendations and everything, but she just got on with the night. Wow, um, she went back to work the next day. Yep, yep. <laughs> that's That's quite incredible. Yeah, she yeah she's got a mind of her own that one. <laughs> well, to stand up to three guys with a gun, yeah, um, 
Yes. And refuse what they wanted. You, you can work out. And she'd just been on a, a armed hold-up course as well, and of course she did everything she was not supposed to do. She actually stood up to them. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Very much so. Wow. Yeah, they fled with nothing. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Um, but my all my recollection of the whole thing is that um, uh, the boy, the boys who did this. Um, apparently they'd come from Pyra, and it was about it was six in the morning, around about six. So she was opening up, and uh, something happened to the pizza man. You know, sometime between midnight and six that day. Yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, I it think... was after midnight that he was shot. I believe. I mean, how many guys were roaming around intent on robbery uh, that uh, morning? This point is one that stood out to me immediately upon hearing about the armed robberies that morning, and it's been a tough one to shake. In the small rural towns of Paidoa and Waihi, separated by only 10 or 15 minutes, what is the likelihood that there would be two separate, completely unrelated, aggravated crimes committed using a firearm within the space of a few hours? Bearing in mind that incidences like this in this part of New Zealand are certainly not the norm. And the sad thing is, is when she eventually, she was funny, she, she decided she had to phone the police, something had happened, she was going to dial 111, and she thought, oh no, this isn't an emergency, so she's <laughs> crawling through the phone book looking for the local police station, which wouldn't have been manned anyway. Wow. When she eventually got hold of the police, they told her they were very busy, or too busy in Pyra, uh with a, a, an incident so I don't, I, I can't recollect that I'll have to tell you this, if she remembers, is when the actual police arrived to see her. Because if they responded immediately, they could have put on the chase and they wouldn't have held up the dairy and I think it was catty catty. So yeah, if if the police had got onto it straight away, and I'm not saying they didn't, I'm, I'm just not quite sure. Yeah. Um, they they could have, I think they would have done a lot better. Because apparently it was the alibis of the three that put the police off prosecution or uh, going any further. While Sam was checking the pump levels that morning, three men approached her from the rear side of the building, wearing balaclavas and pointing a pistol at her head. They demanded she open the till and cigarette cabinet. However, when she didn't comply, one of the men kicked her in the stomach before they eventually fled. Initially, news media and the police suspected that these robberies could be connected with Jordan's murder. However, Apparently, alibis were provided that placed the men at a party in Waihe the previous night. It appears at this point, the police removed them from the investigation. Clearly, the key is this alibi. If being present at a party the night before is the only alibi, then this could leave ample room to make a short 15-minute drive to Waihe and back, likely with no one even knowing you're missing. To be clear, I'm not saying that this is the case, just that this is possible. However, there are other aspects which don't make a lot of sense. In the two armed holdups, they were specifically looking for cash and cigarettes. However, in the case of Jordan's murder, nothing was stolen. We do know that Jordan's freezers had been robbed in the previous months, but is this the type of robbery these young men were likely to commit? As we continue with the interview, John then mentions a conversation Sam had with a new staff member at the mobile some years after the robbery. One- said is um, not long after 
she, um, I can't remember, I, I don't know the times or dates, but she had a new worker um, join the staff at Mobile who didn't really know much about what was going on. And they were talking and she immediately named someone who was the culprit. And that was, um, but she named the person who was, uh, who actually did it. <laughs> oh, the pizza man. Right. Oh, she said that that yeah. was the person who who shot the Pete um, yeah, Jordan. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and it was a voluntary thing. They weren't talking about the robbery or anything. They were just talking in general. Yeah. Wow. And I know at the time that was the consensus. I'd heard this name banded around before. I think it was, yeah. I mean, you know, it could have been a coincidence, but they would have had enough time to get rid of the firearm because not sure if the gun that was pointed at her was a fake or not but there again where you know she's not a person who would recognize the gun anyway so but she, she was definitely had a, a firearm of some sort pointed at her being assaulted by a group of men in balaclavas in the early hours of the morning with a gun pointed at your face and being kicked in the stomach is going to be a massive ordeal for any person it defies belief that she went back to work the next day the reality is that in all likelihood She was still in a state of shock, and the events of the previous morning had yet to set in. I have been in contact with her for this podcast, but she has been very reluctant to speak, and I've only been able to communicate through a few brief emails, and I 100% respect her decision. In the few brief emails we have exchanged, she's confirmed a couple key points for me. The first is to verify the conversation John had stated Sam had had with an employee about the alleged killer. This is what she said. This is not her voice. Yeah, about five and a half years later, I was working with someone that heard one of the killed the pizza man. But the strange thing was, she didn't know that he was the one involved with the armed holdup that happened at the mobile. I want to be clear that no one has ever been charged for Jordan's death, and any person is presumed innocent until proven otherwise. Naturally, when I heard this, it sparked my interest. I emailed Sam back asking for more details, but at this point, she went silent and I'm yet to hear anything further. The part that is interesting is the fact that the girl who told Sam this apparently had no knowledge of the fact that these same men, who were relations, had been involved in the armed hold-ups at the Mobile and Park Road Dairy. Her story seems to have no connection to these events. The second thing I wanted to confirm with Sam was the type of weapons the men were carrying when they committed the robbery. In particular, I was interested in the gun that was used in the robbery. I asked Sam if she could remember. Yes, one with a hammer and one with a small pistol. Both of these weapons are relevant and both are also contradictory as potentially involved in Jordan's murder. First off, the small pistol. Jordan was shot with a .22 caliber gun. While it is true there are a large range of .22 caliber pistols on the market, the police made it very clear in the 2020 episode of Cold Case that they were looking for a .22 caliber rifle. While they didn't specifically say they weren't looking for a pistol, examples of firearms were shown on the show which would point to the murder weapon being a rifle, not a pistol. The next important fact relating to the weapon is that when the men were eventually caught and charged with the armed robberies, the police believed the weapon the men had used in the armed robberies was in fact an imitation pistol, not capable of firing actual rounds, and they were charged as such. However, in my view, As the men were not actually apprehended immediately, and in fact were on the run for up to a month, 
there was plenty of time to dispose of a real firearm and replace it with an imitation, perhaps in the hope of either a reduced sentence or to possibly try to remove the link between Jordan's murder and the armed robberies. Now I'd like to talk about the claw hammer. The moment I heard that a claw hammer was involved, a thought immediately came to my mind. Knife cuts. If you'll recall in episode 1, I spoke to Heather and Christos, and they both confirmed that they were advised to provide a long sleeve top for Jordan's funeral because his arms had significant knife cuts. Because his body was not, it was quite badly mutilated. Yep, yep. And um, he'd had a couple of knives. I know from the undertaker he didn't want the kids to see because he had knife cuts on his arms and things. That's what the undertaker told us at the time, that they didn't want the kids to see. I believe these cuts to Jordan's arms are crucial to this case because, in my view, would indicate that there was both a secondary weapon and, likely, a second perpetrator. So when I heard about a claw hammer, immediately I thought, could this be the second weapon? If you're familiar with a claw hammer, the backside has two long claw-like prongs, which are used to remove nails. If you were to take the backside of a hammer and repeatedly strike someone in the arms, it wouldn't be a great stretch to say that this could cause deep lacerations. Let's take a moment to play out a fictitious scenario. Jordan is upstairs on his computer browsing Trade Me. He shuts down his computer just before 1.30am and heads downstairs to lock the back gate before he goes to bed. Having seen all the lights to Mykonos Pizza on in the early hours, a group of men driving by decide to rob the store and proceed to the back entrance where they encounter Jordan locking the gate. A struggle ensues in which Jordan grabs the barrel of a rifle one of the men is carrying. Another man then uses the claw side of the hammer to strike blows to Jordan's arm in an attempt to get him to let go of the rifle. In the melee, the rifle goes off. The bullet ricochets off Jordan's arm and into his chest. In a panic, fearing capture, the men flee. First off, the police have stated that Jordan's computer was shut down at 1.30am. This would indicate that he was done on the computer for the night. If he would have heard a noise downstairs while browsing the internet, it's likely that he would have left the computer running while he went downstairs to have a look. Secondly, the keys to the gate were found loose on the ground in the area of the scuffle marks. This points to the fact that Jordan was in the process of closing up for the night, keys in a hand, on the way to the back gate when the assault occurred. Most of the information in this scenario is fact. What we don't have is the identity of the assailants. So let's insert the men who committed the armed robberies that morning into the scenario and see how the puzzle fits. First off, we know that there were at least three and maybe four men who robbed the mobile station at 6am, so this gives us our multiple perpetrators. Secondly, we know that these men had a propensity for violence as they had physically assaulted the service attendant and in fact only fled when she told them she was pregnant. Thirdly, we know that these men were in the area. The distance between Mykonos Pizza and the mobile station can be covered in 13 minutes. I've driven this myself to check. So let's talk about motive. The fact that all the lights were on at that early hour, and we know this from Linda's interview, means to someone driving past, it's likely someone is present, and there may be the opportunity to catch someone closing up for the day with money in the till. An easy target. The back entrance was pitch black, so it would be easy to duck down the side street off the main road and approach the rear of the store without being seen. In terms of Jordan's injuries, we know he had serious cuts to his arms, 
and these men were carrying a claw hammer that morning. We also know Jordan was shot. But here's where this scenario potentially falls apart. Jordan was found with a couple hundred dollars in his pocket, and nothing had been taken from the store. Some would say this rules out the motive being robbery. But I disagree with this. The fact the bullet ricocheted from Jordan's arm into his chest to me indicates that this death was likely an accident. With Jordan holding the gun and refusing to let go, firing the gun was likely a last-ditch effort to get him to give up the fight. The moment the gun fired, Jordan let go of the rifle. Knowing the gunshot would likely bring unwanted attention, the men fled immediately. We know the shot was not instantly fatal as Jordan walked to the back gate before succumbing to his wounds. Jordan was likely chasing the perpetrators in his final moments as they fled. In the dark, the fleeing men having no idea that the shot had actually caused a mortal wound, the ricochet resulting in death, both unlucky and unintentional. So the lack of an actual robbery to me doesn't rule it out as a motive. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now let's speculate for a moment that the pistol the men were carrying that morning was actually real and not an imitation. Well, that still wouldn't match with the .22 calibre long barrel rifle that the police believe was used to shoot Jordan. Case closed, right? Well, maybe not. I've spent many, many hours combing through the internet in search of news articles, reports, and any information related to these armed robberies and I've found a very unclear picture of what actually happened that morning. In a majority of news reporting, I found the names of three men. However, on the 2020 episode of Cold Case, they refer to four men committing the robberies. I've also found a news report relating to the sentencing of one of these men, in which it stated that the men were armed with a pistol, a claw hammer, and another unknown weapon. Could this unknown weapon possibly have been a rifle? I've only seen this mentioned once, and I'll admit it's a stretch, but it highlights a crucial element of these robberies. These men weren't caught quickly. In fact, they were on the run for weeks. As John mentioned earlier in this episode, 
When Sam called the police that morning to alert them of the robbery at the mobile station, they told her they were busy, obviously dealing with Jordan's murder only 20 kilometres up the road. The reality is, by the time the police actually caught up with these men some weeks later, there had been more than ample time to dispose of any potential evidence. They were obviously travelling in a vehicle at the time, and this vehicle could very easily have contained other unknown weapons or guns. In fact, one of the men eventually charged was also charged with unlawful possession of two other unrelated firearms, so there is absolutely no doubt that they were in possession of or had access to a range of guns. And disposing of a gun in that particular area is likely not difficult. John has his own theory about where that twenty two might be found. Hmm. No, no. So but, yeah. it's a more common gun that sort of young people would be able to have. Yeah, it's pretty easy to come across a twenty two. Yeah, and not a sophisticated firearm. And it'd be pretty easy to get rid of it as well in the gorge. It would, yeah. Or I mean I always imagine it was thrown into the gorge. It's lying there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, well yeah, I mean it could, you'd have to imagine the police surely would have would have combed the gorge, you know. I mean, oh, yeah, but uh, you couldn't comb every inch of that river. No. God, there's rocks and there's all sorts of crevices. And... Situated directly between Paidoa, the place of Jordan's murder, and Waihe, the location of the first armed robbery, is a gorge. Wild and stunning, with sheer rock faces and mountains honeycombed with hundreds of old mine shafts. The Ohinamiri River cascades through it, reminiscent of something from the Rocky Mountains. If you haven't been before, it's a great place to visit. It would also be a great place to dispose of a weapon. The road winds through the gorge, literally centimetres from the edge of a drop directly down into the Rocky River. It would be no problem to wind down a window and throw a gun into the canyon. I'm not saying I necessarily believe this is the case, but it is certainly possible. Whether the police did in fact comb the river, I don't know, but it would be a difficult search. And if their only alibi is being present at a party in Waihe at the time, that's a very loose alibi to say the least. The reality is that without seeing the police report, I'll have no way of knowing exactly what direct evidence the police have in relation to the armed robberies and to rule them out of Jordan's murder. As the armed robbery case is closed, I've filed an Official Information Act request for these police reports. I'm yet to hear back, but I'm cautiously optimistic that when I do, it will help shed a light on why the police ruled them out as suspects in Jordan's murder so early in the case. I've attempted to reach out to one of these men, but have yet to get a reply, and the others seem very difficult to locate, no doubt by design. Personally, I believe there are far too many coincidences here to be able to discount these men as potential suspects in Jordan's murder and I do have other avenues I want to pursue in relation to this lead, like confirming the alibi. However, before I do, I'd like to share a somewhat serendipitous story John shared with me. During the robbery, when one of the men had kicked Sam in the stomach, she lied and said she was pregnant, hoping this might stop the attack. It worked. The men fled. But the crazy thing? Turns out, she was. Really, as I said, I was there for my daughter at the time, so I was more concerned with her. I mean, we were, as a family, we were very angry. I mean, my, one of my sons said, if I get hold of him, he said, I don't mind going to jail, I'll do what you know, deserve. he deserves. Uh, one of the coincidences, when she was kicked in the stomach, it was quite a big kick as well, 
Um, she didn't know at the time that she was actually pregnant. Olive's now eight, of course. But the weird thing was, later on, uh, and I think it was after the birth, that um, found out that they called it Operation Olive, the police. Huh. Wow. And she named her daughter Olive. And that was way before any influence had had that name chosen. Wow. That is... <laughs> Quite, quite, quite crazy, isn't it? It, it? It's a bit mad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Of all the names they could have chosen to call it, it was Operation Olive, which I presume was his Mediterranean background. Now, I'm certainly not a spiritual person, but you can't deny this is an eerie connection. For some, like me, just another bizarre, random coincidence. But for others, an invisible link. Perhaps a gentle nudge in the right direction. There's a saying, six degrees of separation. If you haven't heard of it, it means that all people are fewer than six social connections away from each other. Well, in New Zealand, we often refer to this as two degrees of separation. Because we have such a small, isolated population, and we tend to be quite a social bunch, Everyone knows everyone. So as it is here with our couple degrees, I was casually speaking to a friend when I mentioned the armed robberies we've discussed in this episode, and, no surprise, she said, Oh, I know someone who used to be with one of those boys that committed those robberies. Of course, I asked if she might speak to me. A few days later, I was standing outside the door of her office, a sign hanging on the door saying, I'll be back in ten. Test, test. Okay, so I'm in Pyro and going to be interviewing uh, about her relationship with one of the boys that was involved in the armed robberies and why he and Caddy Caddy. So uh, I don't really know anything about at this point, so going in relatively blind here and uh, we'll see how we go. There's a back in 10 minutes sign here. And we're supposed to meet at 12, so it's 11.58. That's fine. Lunchtime. Yeah. I grabbed you a flat white. Oh, thank you so much. Now that's all good. Oh. Oh. Yeah, lunchtime, but I knew I wasn't going to have a much of a chance, so I thought I'd sneak out. Now's the time, yeah. Yeah. For her own security, she's asked for her real name not to be used in the podcast, so I'm going to call her Fiona. We walk into her office. It's small, with a couple rooms and a foyer area. Fiona's young, considering she manages her own business. In her early 30s, she's friendly, but I immediately get the sense that she's someone that doesn't put up with shit. The smile of someone that's seen both sides of society, the good and the bad, and has had to fight to get to where she is. I take a seat beside her desk, and while I get my recording equipment set up, we sip our coffees, and she gives me a sobering outline of the reality of the client she has to deal with. Fiona works in the social development industry, and she sees the reality of how hard life can be in these small rural towns. Insane, yeah. It's insane, because obviously going down into lockdown where people can't work, um, they can't make their mortgage repayments, they can't make their personal loan repayments... 
Um, having kids at home creates a bigger food bill, um, a bigger power bill. Um, it puts a lot of stress on a lot of people. So it's just, at the moment, it's crazy. I'm probably doing anywhere between two and 20 KiwiSaver hardship applications for people at the moment. Wow. I've just done two this morning. COVID has wreaked havoc on certain parts of society and continues to do so. In some ways, further exacerbating the equality gap. The continued government mandates and restrictions in New Zealand have people like myself and Fiona scratching our heads on who exactly the government is trying to protect, given most of these actions are hurting the exact people they claim need protection. But that's a topic for another entire podcast. We talk on for a good while about general social injustice before I eventually bring the conversation back to the reason I'm here, her ex-partner. So, cutting to, um, if we talk about the, the robberies that, that mm-hmm. happened, um, so you were, and I have no actual information about so I understand you were with one of the boys. Okay, so, <clears throat> it's never been proven. So, going right back, I met a guy through Tinder. Yes, Tinder. <laughs> um, and... I So we were together for probably, I'd say, about nine months because I was quite scared about letting these people meet my children and stuff. So one night he'd come around to the house. My kids were still awake. Um, he came around. I had just finished bathing the kids, and I said to him, um, I just have to go and put my kids to bed. And he was like, yep, sweet as. He was sitting on the couch in the lounge room. I took my four kids up to their beds, put them in their beds, said goodnight to them, came back down. He was not in my lounge room. So I don't know where he vanished to. He left, no. I didn't hear the door open or nothing, and that's what freaked me out. So I like, because little old me who lived by myself, and it was still quite fresh. Well, not fresh. It had been like 18 months, two years. Um... I locked my ranch slider, which was the door that he, you know, we entered and exited the house through. I locked that, and I literally walked through my entire house checking every nook and cranny and cupboard that he could possibly hide in, because it freaked me out. Um, His phone was turned off. He wasn't returning my text messages. Like, his phone was turned on when he was at my house, and all of a sudden it was off, and he vanished. And so... Just going back, so you met him on Tinder. How long, how how much had you guys hung out to this point? Um, like, we used to hang out, I would say, like, four to six nights a week. Um, was he acting weird or anything that day? He seemed like I hadn't spoken to him because I'd worked all day, and at that point I was actually a hairdresser here in town. Um, so we didn't have much contact between 8.30 and 5 o'clock because I was busy doing my thing with my clients and stuff um, but we had texts while I was on lunch and it was a simple case that he was going to come round um, and hang out, we were going to watch a movie and whatever and we'd agreed, I'm sure it was like 6.30 that he agreed we agreed to cut him, for him to come over and watch a movie and yeah, I was going to put the kids to bed and we were just going to hang out, have some dinner, watch a movie So after that point when did you hear from him next? Um, I didn't see or hear from him. Uh, I would have to say it would have been like maybe 10 odd days after that that I didn't, like I had 
no contact with him. His phone was always turned off. Um, I woke up, obviously, the next morning, and I freaked out because, obviously, the news had broke out about the three petrol stations having the armed hold-ups. Um, and I think it was, like, a couple of days after that, I had, like, some senior detective sergeant people actually ring me on the landline at the salon. God, I don't know how they figured out that I worked or was a part owner of it or anything, but they rung me and they were like, we need to talk to you about the pizza guy murder. I was like, okay. So they came round to my house that afternoon um, and interviewed me and they had like a ream of paper that tapped into his phone and printed everything off. All of They had all of our text messages, all of our, like all the phone calls and everything that he'd been making. Um, and they interviewed me um, and then it was probably maybe three or four days after that he then contacted me and was like don't stress the cops are just interviewing every male in he that fits a certain category I wasn't involved yeah. and I just played dumb I was like I don't know what you're talking about yeah but he knew that those detectives had been at my house and I don't know how he figured that one out because they didn't turn up in a cop car. Um, I actually think I closed work early that day to go and do the interview to make sure that my kids were still at daycare so I wasn't getting interrupted by them. Um, and then even after he texts and's like, it wasn't me or anything, I got the text, off. it wasn't his number, it was a different cell phone number, um, and he said, you know, I've had to get a new phone, they've tapped my phone, um, it wasn't me, they're just doing this, and that was it, I still, like every now and then I bump into him in town, Yeah. Um, but that was, like no one ever ended it, it was just, he disappeared that night, and... Huh. I walked into this office thinking I was interviewing someone about the armed robberies. I was now suddenly realising that this might potentially be so much more. In the house, getting ready to watch a movie at one moment, the next minute, gone. And not seen or heard of by Fiona for about 10 days. While I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt at this stage, it certainly doesn't sound like something an innocent person would do. I ask her what kind of man he was, and she tells me that he'd come from a difficult situation. His mother had committed suicide around this time after mental health battles, and this had coincided with him being involved with drugs. Okay, and what were your thoughts when um, when he said, I mean, so this is pretty out of the blue, and he says, I had nothing to do with this. What was running through your mind at this point? I was just like, get the fuck away. Get the fuck away from this. Like, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, I don't need myself or my children involved in this crap um so it was probably a case that because I wasn't texting maybe two seconds trying to pursue the relationship any further that's kind of why he he did what he did I don't know um but yeah it freaked me out a little bit and I was like as soon as I heard about the armed hold-ups I was like what the fuck he acted so sus last night he'd never acted like that before never um, was it him? And then having the detectives ring me, I was just like, what the fuck? 
And so afterwards, there was no, as far as you, you know, like you didn't hear of any actual connection to the armed robberies. It was just what you heard the cops said to you that day. I heard, obviously the cops spoke to me. They were trying to get everything out of me that they knew, but then they knew a hell of a lot because of them reading text messages and stuff anyway. I just kind of had to confirm what they already knew. Yeah. Um, and then that was the last I heard ever heard of it. They never, ever came back for more information um, obviously it was all over the news about the armed hold-ups and stuff, but there was never anything that obviously came out of it and it just fizzled out. I was curious to know exactly what the police were asking Fiona when they came to her house that day. They kind of just asked me if I knew who he was, what our relationship was, um, <coughs> what happened the night, um, because obviously they'd read the text messages, so... Um, I think they had a text message that was like, I'm on my way, I'll be there soon. And then like half an hour later, they're having these text messages like, where have you gone? Like, are you coming back? Like, what's going on from me to him trying to figure out what the fuck's going on? Um, And yeah, it was just kind of, um, they wanted to know who lived in the house with me. They wanted to know how he arrived at my house, how he left my house. What kind of car um, did he have? He didn't. Right. And if he did, okay, sorry. Occasionally he would drive a vehicle, but it was his mother's vehicle, and it was like, I don't even know what it would be. Like an old school, like box sort of vehicle. Yeah. Like it had a proper boot on it. Yeah. Um, and But that was his mum's vehicle, so every now and then he'd borrow that and use that to yeah. come around. Yeah. Otherwise, he'd walk. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he obviously must have had... Well, that day, someone obviously must have picked him up, you'd have to assume. Well, I don't know, because, like, I, where I lived, I was at a back house. So we had houses in front of us. So my outside light didn't reach the end of our driveway. And obviously, I was up putting the kids to bed, and I wasn't expecting him to leave so I wasn't looking out the window or anything like that um and even if somebody pulled up down the road I would never have seen those car lights or anything like that so I don't know I don't know how we got there um because obviously it was half past six so all my curtains were closed I know he definitely well unless he parked out on the road which he never did I don't know if he drove. I don't know if he walked. I don't know if he got dropped off. Mm. I don't know if he got picked up. So how long was he actually at your house before he left that night? Like half an hour, 20 minutes, half an hour. Mm. That's interesting. Um, and he never sort of just like taken off like that in the past? Never. Like, so it was just really odd. Yeah. No, no people, random people that have been hanging around in the last while that you were like, oh, this person's new or anything. No, he no. never talked about anything. Um, in terms of just like the kind of guy that he was, like, did you ever sort of feel like scared around him or anything? No. Like, no, never no. by that. No, and I felt he was really good with the kids too. Like on the weekends and stuff, he had, um, he was really good at soccer. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he used to like teach, try, will try and teach the kids how to do like soccer tricks or just do them and buzz them out. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it's, a, it takes a lot for me to introduce my children to somebody. Um, so he'd probably only known the kids for maybe two months 
but yet we'd been together for nine months. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, he always wanted to do fun stuff with the kids. Like, we we had taken the kids over to Sapphire Springs and Caddy Cat. It's kind of like the local pool. It's yeah. the closest swimming pool we've yeah. got. Um, so, you know, we'd taken the kids over there for the day. We'd gone out to the beach together. Like, we'd done stuff like that. So they had the opportunity to get to know him as well. So I never had a problem obviously with him around the children. Um, I'd never thought that he was that sort of a person. For the record, there's no evidence that this man had anything to do with either Jordan's murder or the armed robberies on June 12th. But the circumstances surrounding his disappearance, use of a burner phone and the heavy ongoing police interest are obviously important. And I know that he was interviewed more than once from the cops. He was... I know that he, I don't know if he was held as a suspect, but I know that he was held overnight when he was questioned. Yeah. The cops held him in custody overnight. Yeah. Um, and then apparently they didn't have a leg to stand on to hold him any longer. Um, and then they, they like, they bugged him for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards. We keep chatting and end up discussing the men who were eventually charged for the armed robberies. I explained that they had been removed from the picture in relation to Jordan's murder due to the fact that they had an alibi. Fiona had a very simple answer for this, and one I can't disagree with. I want to try yeah, and find those. Yeah, but they... I mean, we all... It's easy enough to get an alibi, isn't it? Of course. I thank Fiona for the interview and being so frank and open. It's not easy to do, and I have a lot of respect for her courage and honesty. We've spoken a lot in this episode about coincidences, and yet again, this last lead is screaming that something is just not right. Does an innocent person disappear for 10 days, the day of two armed robberies and a murder, with their phone off? There's only one reason a person would do this, to avoid being tracked. So why would he not want to be tracked? Was he involved in the armed robberies? Or was he involved in Jordan's murder? Or was he up to some other completely unrelated nefarious purpose? I think there's only one person that can answer that for me. I'm going to try and track him down. However, I'm highly doubtful he'll talk to me. And to be honest, I have my own reservations as to whether I even should. I've heard that this man is potentially dangerous and has gang connections. I've even been told that he can make people disappear. Whether this is true, I don't know. But like I said, New Zealand has two degrees of separation, and this can be very good or very bad. Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolf. For daily stories and updates on the podcast, you can follow me on Instagram at RyanWolfNZ. Opinions of guests of this podcast are not necessarily views of the podcast itself. If you're enjoying this podcast, help keep it ad-free by supporting it through a one-off donation. You can do this through our ACAR support page. You'll find the link in the description of this episode. On the next episode of Guilt. Um, yeah. Oh, what's his name? It's Derek Carey. It was a Derek Smith. And um, they came in and they were asking me about this 22. And I said, what are you asking about that for? First day. And it was stinking hot in there. I know for a fact it was stinking hot, and I, I know quite often they do that on purpose. Um, but I was just sitting, sitting in the interview room, 
and all of a sudden the detective that was interviewing me at the time disappeared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.